My name's Eric, I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and usually this is where I do my thing. I do some teaching on Sunday mornings, usually, and, and today I have the just distinct privilege and honor of, of welcoming a very special guest to The Story Church, someone I've wanted to come and, and speak for quite some time. Dr. Sarah Salviander grew up in Canada in an atheist home. Uh, she never really seriously considered Christianity until she was in graduate school. Well, today... Uh, Dr. Salviander is not only an accomplished astrophysicist and an accomplished author, she is also a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Her mission in life is to reveal and, and unpack the harmony that exists between uh, science and what's going on in modern science, specifically with the Christian faith. She is the co-founder and the editor of a blog that y'all should all check out, uh, called Six Day Science. Uh, six Day Science, is that right? Sixdayscience.com. I want to make sure you get that right. Six is spelled out S I X. Sixdayscience.com. She's also my favorite person to follow on Twitter. And I don't say that lightly, right? So if you're on Twitter, you got to check her out at Sarah Salviander. And, uh, and you can find her there. And she is often in conversation, really active and, and um, uh, really loving conversation with agnostics and atheists online on Twitter. So be sure to check that out. Her entire web presence, including the blog, uh, it's all about informing people about the latest developments in science and how they relate to Christianity and philosophy. Today, Dr. Salviander is here to talk to us about Genesis 1 and the evidence for the supernatural. Would you all join me in welcoming to the Story Church, Dr. Sarah Salviander. Good morning. Thank you so much for welcoming me here. I'm going to tell you today a combination of my testimony and what it is that brought me to Christian faith um, in, a, in a scientific way. Um, I am the perfect atheist experiment. There is a popular atheist hypothesis that people are only religious because they were raised that way because their parents indoctrinated them, because their communities are religious, and that if people were raised atheist, there would be no religion. There's another hypothesis that the more scientific knowledge you have, the more that pushes out the need for religion to explain anything. Well, I lived this. This is how I was raised. I was raised atheist in a secular country. My parents were ex-Catholic socialist atheists who moved us to Canada from Oregon at a young age. I never set foot in a church. I never read one word of scripture. I was vaguely aware that there was this Jesus person, but I honestly had no idea what his relevance was. When my brother and I were teenagers, my dad, uh, he introduced us to an explicitly atheist philosophy called objectivism, and that became an important part of our lives for years. My parents highly valued education, and there was no question that my brother and I would go to university. We were very interested in science, both of us, and it helped that my dad was a math teacher who, just for fun, taught us calculus at a young age. It was fun, actually. I really enjoyed it. I was heavily into Star Wars and Star Trek as a kid. I fell in love with outer space, and I just knew that my future career was going to involve space somehow. My brother, meanwhile, was obsessed with airplanes. He built airplanes, he designed them, whatever he could do. Well, my brother and I both went on to get PhDs in scientific fields. 
I became an astrophysicist, and not surprisingly, my brother became an aerospace engineer. My parents almost never talked about religion. And I don't know how, but somehow, by the time I had finished high school, I had become a confirmed Christian hater. I watched with frustration and horror as my beloved grandfather, who was just this really charming, happy, fun guy, became really reflective and religious in the last few years of his life. I thought he was being brainwashed. I didn't get it. I attended objectivist club meetings. I sneered at Christians. I thought their religion made them foolish and weak. This is why I was as shocked as anyone else when years later, spontaneously, I would become a theist. It started when I moved to the U.S. to get my physics degree. I decided to move back to Oregon, where I had been born, and I attended a small liberal arts college called Eastern Oregon University. And it was there that I met actual Christians in numbers for the first time in my life. I think the whole time I was in Canada, I met three people who identified as Christians. I discovered that half of my physics professors were Christian, which I found shocking. They were smart. They were interesting people. It was not at all the caricature I had in my mind of Christian people. But the big crack in my atheist foundation came when I tried to put together a coherent worldview from the perspective of there being no God, a system of morality, of ethics, of explaining where the universe came from, how do we have this concept of human rights, all of these things. Could you do it? based on the idea of there being no God. And I couldn't. And honestly, it really disturbed me that I couldn't come up with this coherent worldview. And so, you know, by this time, I'd lost interest in objectivism. I found it very barren and cold. And so I was in this philosophical no-man's land where I stayed for a while. Uh, the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I worked as a research intern at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Science at UC San Diego. And this was interesting because for the first time, I was on the cutting edge of scientific research. Now, before that, as a high school student, my first two years in college, you know, you're pretty much in the center of mass of knowledge. This is stuff that's been known for hundreds of years. It's been very well tested. You just kind of told this stuff. Well, for the first time now, I'm studying things that had never been studied before. And I remember thinking how odd it was that this very esoteric question that we had about the universe was answerable. We were trying to figure out how much normal or baryonic matter there is in the universe. This is the stuff, the ordinary stuff that makes up you and me, trees, houses, as opposed to exotic things like dark matter and dark energy. Well, it turns out to be a sensitive test of some predictions of Big Bang Theory, which is what my group was studying. I couldn't believe that we could not only ask these questions about the universe, but they were answerable. It required so many things to fall into place. It seemed to me very unlikely that this was by accident. It was like the universe wanted to reveal itself to us. In the words of Einstein, he said, it's a miracle that the universe is intelligible because there's no reason that it has to be. And I found myself walking across that beautiful La Jolla campus one sunny day. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I realized that God was by far the best explanation for all of that. And not only that, I realized that I believed in God. I didn't intend to become a theist. It just happened. 
I learned later that I've been compelled by what's called general revelation, as Paul described so eloquently in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Already the atheist experiment had failed. It had nothing to do with indoctrination. I didn't need to read a word of scripture. I didn't need to have anyone tell me about God's handiwork. I just sensed his presence. I was already learning so much about the world scientifically, and if anything, at that point, it made the atheist worldview that I had held even less plausible. Everything changed for me again when I found a book called The Science of God by Gerald Schroeder. And I don't remember, I think I saw it in a bookstore one day. Something about the title just compelled me. Schroeder is an Orthodox Jewish theologian and an MIT-trained physicist. He showed me that I could take the Genesis account of creation seriously. I hadn't expected to read that in this book. But it's important. I think sometimes our enemies understand our Christian faith better than we do. Thomas Huxley, who is Darwin's infamous bulldog of the 19th century, knew that if the opening book of the Bible would lead us to doubt the authenticity of God's word, that we would be led to doubt the account of Jesus. That's why he and others focus so much of their attacks on Genesis, which if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of an odd thing. The heart and soul of Christian faith is the New Testament, is the Gospels. Why do atheists spend so much time attacking Genesis? Well, it's the opening book of the Bible. And if we can't trust that, how can we trust anything that follows? I mean, it's, it's an effective strategy. Now, I think, personally, we're stuck in kind of stale ways of thinking about Genesis. And we ask the questions, is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it proof that the Bible is just made up? Sam Harris, uh, who's one of the new atheists and a neuroscientist by training, once said that there isn't a word in the Bible that couldn't have been written by a first-century man or woman. Well, what if I told you that is precisely wrong? And what if I told you that Genesis 1 is practically proof of God's existence? Schroeder, working from an understanding of both physics and scripture, explains how the theory of relativity reconciles a literal young earth view with an old earth view of the universe. Now, this is a pretty dense topic, and it's something that I actually had to read through those chapters in his book about three times to really understand. And it led me to create a very detailed slideshow that I put on my website, which I encourage you to look at. And I emailed Dr. Schroeder and asked him if he would bless it, if it was okay, because I was presenting his material. And he liked it so much, he asked if he could use it. So you know that it represents his work. I'm not going to go into it here because it's just too much. But what you can know is that each of the six days of Genesis he explains are literal 24-hour days, but only from God's perspective, from his frame of reference. From our earthly frame of reference, because of the relative nature of time, it is billions of years. Each of those days contains billions of years from our frame of reference. Now, as a physicist, I worked through the math of this. I actually worked through the equations. And it holds up. It works. It was pretty amazing. But what really impressed me more than that was all of the events that are listed in Genesis 1. Each one of them correspond to the exact order and timing that we know through science. 
I must have read Genesis 1 a hundred times after reading Schroeder's book. I counted 27 separate testable statements in Genesis 1. Well, they're all true, and they're all in the correct order. Now, contrary to what Sam Harris says, how would somebody thousands and thousands of years ago know anything about the creation and development of the universe? I'd like you to think about this and place yourself in the context of the ancient world. The Babylonians who'd held the Jewish people captive for many years described the universe as something that had always existed in some primeval form, undeveloped, for eternity. This is how many pagans, in fact, I think all pagans view the universe as having eternally existed, but just being reshaped by gods later on. The Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian mythology, describes their creation epic, and it's an incredibly vicious war between gods and monsters. I mean, it's nothing like Genesis. And somehow throughout all this chaos and this destruction and this warring, you get human beings being created almost kind of as a byproduct. Okay, now you compare that with Genesis, which describes the creation of the universe from nothing and the sequence of events in a very austere, matter-of-fact way. So you have a universe that's created from nothing and is developed stepwise over time from a universe in an initial chaotic state to a universe that's filled with stars, planets, moons, a planet with continents, water, plant life, animal life, and finally, humans. And you get the sense that human beings are the crowning achievement of the development of the universe, not just something that sort of happened as a byproduct. In an age when creation mythologies were about the rise of gods and monsters, war and violence, the establishment of earthly kingdoms, why does Genesis stand alone as such a matter-of-fact description of the unfolding of the universe without any of this personal drama? How would a Bronze Age nomad, we'll assume that this was Moses, know that the universe was created and then developed over time instead of just assuming it existed eternally? This is the pagan assumption, and you look at Aristotle. For 2,000 years, we believed that the universe was eternal because of Aristotle. To find out that it was created was a big deal. Or why why wouldn't someone at that time assume, okay, if the universe is created, then it would just appear in its final form all at once? There's really no reason to assume that it was developed gradually. Somehow, though, Moses knew that the universe wasn't eternal but created, And he knew that its development was marked by several significant events. Now, how would he know these things? If you think about it, we have three options. He guessed. He was just lucky and he guessed. He somehow possessed scientific knowledge that took us thousands of years to arrive at, or that this information was revealed to him. Now, I think we can rule out scientific knowledge. It has taken us thousands of years to arrive at where where we are now with what we know. Does guessing make sense? Okay, let's think about this. Now, let's say that Moses had only four events that he thought of, four significant events in the development of the universe. What would be the odds of him getting them in the right order as we understand them now? If you work it out, it's one out of 24. Not great odds, but not impossible. Let's bump that up. What if he had 10 events? Okay, let's just never mind how he knew them. Let's just ask. What are the odds that he would get them in the correct order by chance? 
Well, the odds are one in 3.6 million. Not so good. Now, the way that you can think about odds, the way I like to explain this to people is you imagine writing each event on a slip of paper. You turn these slips of paper over, you shuffle them up so you don't know the order, and then you just turn them over randomly, and what are the odds that you would get them all in the correct sequence the first time? That's 3.6 million. Okay, and the way that that works is the first time your odds of picking up the first one in the correct order are one out of 10. Now you've got nine slips of paper left, your odds are one out of nine of getting the next one correct, one out of eight, and so on. And to get the total odds of this sequence, you multiply the odds of each of those slips of paper together, 10 times nine times eight, and so on. You call this uh, 10 factorial. So, what are the odds of getting 27 events in the right order by chance? It is 27 factorial. It is one out of 10 to the power of 28. That's a one followed by 28 zeros. It's an almost inconceivably huge number. One in 10 billion, billion, billion. There's just no way that guessing is the way that Moses knew. Now I'll put this in context. The lottery, I think this is something we can relate to. The odds of winning the Texas State Lotto jackpot, one out of 26 million. To get the kind of odds that Moses overcame, you'd have to win the Texas State Lotto jackpot almost four times in a row. I think this kind of brings it home. Um, the first time, let's say you won the lottery, the big jackpot, millions of dollars. People would be like, boy, that's one lucky person. But they wouldn't say it's impossible. It happens. People win it. You win it a second time. People go, wait a second. And you get a knock on the door from the police. I don't know, I haven't looked it up, if anybody has ever won two jackpots in a lifetime. I think it's extremely unlikely. Not impossible. Statistically, it's not zero. But it's so unlikely that people would be pretty suspicious. After the third time, there isn't a person in the world who would think that you were that lucky. They would know that something's up. And cheating does happen in the lottery. I, I looked this up to see how this happens. If anyone has ever cheated with these new lottery systems, and it has happened. There was a clever guy who used what's called a rootkit, and if any of you are software engineers, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is software that you can install into a system. It does what it does, it's a little algorithm, and then it deletes itself. It deletes all evidence that it was ever in there. So supposedly you can get away with doing this, and somebody who had had access to the system did this. And what it did is it made it much more likely that certain sequences of numbers would come up. And so he'd tell his family and his friends, play these numbers, you're probably going to win. Not the big jackpot, probably, but he would have them win smaller amounts. Lots of thousands and thousands of dollars. But, you know, when people all connected to one person who works the lottery start winning, you know, you're going to get caught. And he got caught. And why did he get caught? Because it's so unlikely that all of these people related to this fellow would win the lottery. People knew something was going on. Okay, well, cheated. It's the only way that can happen. So, with Moses winning, equivalently, the lottery almost four times, the most reasonable explanation is that he cheated. Now, how would you cheat? He had inside knowledge, just like this guy who installed the software. He had the inside track on this. Who gave him that knowledge? Well, it was the creator of the universe. 
That to me as a scientist was by far the most reasonable explanation. As crazy as it sounds, as implausible as that sounds, when you rule out the other options, that's all that's left. I studied Schroeder's claims in the Old Testament for years. I really wanted to take my time with this. I was compelled. I was intrigued. I bought every book that he referenced. I worked through the math. And by the end of that, it was enough to convince me that the Bible is worth taking seriously, and I started reading it. And you know how they say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, at that point, I met a pastor at a local church. Now, my husband, when I married him, was already Christian. He has an amazing testimony of his conversion. He was raised even more hardcore atheist than I was. His mother was a card-carrying Marxist. He was also a Christian hater, and he came to Jesus through a very remarkable way. If you follow him on Twitter, he'll tell you. Um, so he was already on board with Christianity, but I wasn't. We met a pastor. We were buying a car, and this pastor was working at CarMax, and he was doing this because he liked to be a working pastor. He wanted to be out where he could just talk to people and be around people in addition to his duties at his church. And so as we're buying this car, I tell him, you know, I'm a graduate student, and you know, I'm reading the Bible. I'm, I'm kind of making sense of this. And he, he told me he's a pastor, and he said, why don't you come to my church and take a class? and think about becoming Christian. So I did. I took the class, and with the help of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, I studied the claims in the New Testament. And I got to tell you, I was really compelled by the evidence for the truth of the Gospels. But not only that, I was really compelled by the person of Jesus as I'm reading these words, as I'm reading the things that he's saying. And with the evidence for the Gospels, I, I had to accept them as true. And I remembered, again, one of my favorite figures in science, Einstein, when he was asked one time, do you believe in the historical Jesus? And he said, oh, yes. No, he'd read the New Testament. That was part of his education growing up. And he described being enthralled with the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Those are his words. I love the way he described that because that's how I felt. Well, I had to accept it as true. The evidence compelled me. But it's not enough to just accept something is true. You have to want it also. I mean, after all, Satan believes that the Gospels are true. I wanted what Jesus had to offer. Forgiveness, redemption, eternal life with the Creator. So this was about halfway through my doctoral studies. My brother was also in graduate school at the time. He and I are 11 months apart in age. We're very close. We did things almost exactly at the same time. He's getting his PhD in aerospace engineering. And because grad school is pretty grueling, it's pretty tough. And he and I would stay in touch online. We chat every day on Messenger, supporting each other. And I remember telling him very hesitantly that I was thinking about becoming a Christian. I didn't know what he'd say. I was a little worried that he'd think that I'd lost my mind. And instead, he shocked me with his response. He said, What's to think about? You just do it. I did. Here was someone even more skeptical and cynical than I had been, and he'd given himself to Jesus. He hadn't even told me. Well, he'd converted first because of the love that he had for his children. He had small children at the time. And he told my dad, I remember this, he couldn't stand the idea that even long after he'd be dead, that the universe would just snuff out his kids. He hated that idea. And so he had a motivation to believe in eternal life. And secondly, 
he'd been introduced to the gospel by a Christian grad student in his lab. He went to a Bible study, and he was very moved by the message that he heard that day, and he decided to become Christian. So what else do you do when you believe the truth of something and you also want what it has to offer? So I became Christian. I got baptized. The atheist experiment had doubly failed. My brother and I both raised atheists. No exposure before that to any religion, both highly educated in science. We had become Christian. To me, this is compelling evidence for the existence of God. It makes sense if God exists that what he created would be a testament to his existence. I had invited my dad to witness my baptism. My mom had passed away several years ago, but I sensed that she was drifting back to the faith of her childhood. My dad had not. He was still atheist at the time, but he was beginning to soften in his position. His own father had died not that long ago. This was my grandfather, the happy-go-lucky guy who'd become very religious in the last part of his life. It really disturbed my dad. It was the first time he'd ever lost anyone that close to him. He didn't know what to make of it. Um, and although he was atheist at the time, he was happy for both me and my brother that we had found Christianity and that it made us happy. He was confused as to how he had managed to produce two Christian kids, but he was intrigued, and we began to work on him. We could see that he was becoming very fascinated with Christianity and there was this burgeoning desire to believe. And I'm happy to report that as of four years ago, my dad is a confirmed Christian, and he talks about Jesus probably more than my brother and I do. It's, a, it's the big thing in his life. So what do I want you to take away from all this? What's the point? Well, the point is that general revelation tells us that there is a God. You don't need scripture. You don't need community. As Paul says, what is out there, what God has made, is a testament to his existence. We are without excuse. Special revelation tells God's story and that we are a part of God's story. Now, this is important because we can get to belief in God without scripture, without even another person on this planet telling us anything. But we can't get to special revelation that way. You would never look at the universe and say, well, Jesus must exist, and Jesus must have done this thing for us. You would never know that without somebody telling you. So we have special revelation in the form of scripture. Um, you know, but some people, I've, I've had people ask me, what about people in the world who've never heard of Christianity, who've never heard of Jesus? Are they just out of luck? Well, um, I find it very interesting. I have friends who are missionaries who work all over the world, and they tell me that incredible things are happening around the world in places where Christianity is suppressed, that Jesus appears to these people in visions, in dreams. They find a way, you know, God and Jesus find a way to let people know. But here in the West, in much of the world, we have access to special revelation, to scripture, to find out what Jesus did for us, that we are part of God's story and that God loves us so much that he gave us Jesus to reconcile us to him. And this is a big deal. This is a really big deal to find this out. You know, when I finally understood what the Christian story is, how Jesus took upon himself every sin that we have ever committed, are committing now, and ever will commit, 
that he took that upon his perfect person, bore that punishment that we never could to reconcile us to the Father. And I finally understood, it took me a long time, why Jesus was in such agony when he was praying before he was crucified. And of course, you know, we can think about the physical torment that he went through. And of course, anybody would fear that. Jesus was, after all, human. He is human. He's fully man, fully human. Who wouldn't fear that? But I think it was more than that. I think he feared being cut off from God in that moment when he was clothed in our sin because God had to turn away from him. And to think about being the one person ever to be in perfect communion with God. What joy that must have been. And to lose that, even for a short time, that must have been agony. I would dread it too. But he did that for us, for the joy set before him, for what was to come. And to me, that is the greatest act of love that we could ever conceive of. That is how much God loves us. And we would not know that without special revelation. How do we know that we can trust that special revelation? Well, the Holy Spirit certainly helps with that. But we can also use our study of God's creation to, in the words of Paul, test all things. I think we are duty-bound to do that as Christians. Okay. And this is where, for me, Genesis 1 has been so instrumental in all of this. And so I'm going to relate a bit more of my personal story here of how this can be of practical benefit to us as believers or as seekers. So, um, you know, I had come to Christianity in what I believed to be kind of a coldly rational sort of Spock-like way. And I worried for a long time that, I don't know, maybe my faith wasn't real, that it was just a little bit too up here and not enough here. And uh, it was about five years after I converted that I had a chance to find out. This kicked off a hellish decade for me and my husband that started with a cancer diagnosis, my first cancer diagnosis. I've had cancer three times at a relatively young age. My mother died of cancer at a young age. Her mother died of cancer at almost exactly the same age. And I thought, oh boy, now it's my turn. Here we go. Well, I survived that first round. Um, it was pretty grueling, though, you know, to go through that surgery and that treatment. And then uh, my husband and I were expecting our first child, and we lost that child. We lost our, our first daughter as an infant, and it was crushing. I honestly didn't know for a time how I could go on after that. And thankfully, you know, we got through that. I was able to envision Eleanor in the arms of her creator, and I was able to let go. But it was still devastating. And then my husband got really sick. He caught this really weird disease in Finland from a tick that bit him during a fishing trip. He was paralyzed. He was in the ICU for several days. Didn't know if he was going to live or die. He had a 107-degree fever. He recovered, thankfully, but he was really sick for about a month after that. He's, he's now fully recovered, but it was a pretty tough thing to go through, one thing after another. Then the cancer came back twice. And in the midst of all that, we were able to have another child, um, a perfectly healthy child, our second daughter. But I went through a really bad postpartum depression after that. And the weight of all of these things just crushed me. Getting cancer three times, almost losing my husband, losing a child. 
I was finished. And I'm here to tell you the problem of pain. It's a real problem. I can relate to people who've lost their faith because of it. It was hard. And there was a time where I started to doubt God's existence. You think, how can, how can there be this much pain in the world and there be a God? And it's kind of narcissistic and solipsistic because, you know, it's all about me. I'm thinking about my own pain. But I was brought back to faith by thinking about Genesis 1, about the sheer improbability of that being by chance. And I knew absolutely in that moment that God exists to me. That was proof. Well, does God care? Okay, so he exists. Does he care? And again, I was brought back to special revelation to Jesus who died for us. Nobody has suffered more than Jesus, far more than I did. We can't say that for whatever reason God allows us to suffer, that it's because he doesn't love us. So I don't know exactly why. I know it has something to do with perfecting us, preparing us for what's to come. But I know it's not because God doesn't care. And so this can be the power of understanding things like scientific arguments for the trustworthiness of Scripture. Okay, so now I have a challenge for all of you. I always like to leave people with something that they need to do after they've heard what I've had to say. Tell somebody about this, just one person, one person who has never heard that there are 27 testable, correct statements in the right order in Genesis and the sheer odds of that happening just by chance. Just tell one person about that who's never heard it. I think you'll, you'll find people will be very intrigued. Now, I've laid a lot on you in a short amount of time. You can go to my website where I've written a lot more on this. I've also got a book coming out next year that really goes into this. And so you can get a lot more information about it. I encourage you to get uh, Dr. Schroeder's book. But this is the message that I hope you get from this. Now, I want to end in a short prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to come here to the Story Church and to speak with these people and to relate this message. And you reveal to me the scientific support for your word, which makes sense that the book of nature and the book of scripture should agree with each other and what we can learn by reconciling those two things together and how it leads to the foot of the cross. I thank you, Father, and I hope this lays the seed of belief for anybody who's doubting and it encourages and supports the belief of people who already trust in you and your word. I thank you so much for all of this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.